hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. This would be the time, Craig, where we uh, say goodbye to another prominent and very influential actor, Nichelle Nichols, who had the very groundbreaking role of playing Uhura on the original Star Trek series, a black woman who, at the time, there were hardly any black women on TV, um, let alone black women who kissed a white man, and that happened on Star Trek. So uh, she was uh, very groundbreaking in her role on that series, and she died recently. We are honoring her today by picking a horror movie that she's been in. And she's been in a couple horror movies, two or three, a few of them, I think, later in life. But this one that we picked, we felt probably had the most prominent role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the movie that we're doing is from 1986. It's called The Supernaturals. And I, you know, I, I mean, I hadn't heard of this movie before. But then when I looked at the cover art from the VHS uh, thing, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen this on the shelves in the horror section. I just never rented it. This movie was released, I guess, I guess it was released in theaters. I didn't get a lot of information about this film when I was looking online for it. It then was subsequently released on VHS, and there it stayed. There's not been, like, a cleaned-up DVD version or anything like that. And so, sadly, like, the version that we watched was... The quality was quite poor, even though we were on Amazon Prime and renting it from there. Yeah. It was really dark and murky, and it looked like a transfer from VHS. Yeah. To the point where you could see, you know, the roll of the line a couple of times down. I mean, I forgot almost what that was like, you know, when you're watching a VHS tape, and and there's like a line that rolls down the screen. You know, it's just so, so analog, and we're so digital now. So so we're, we're doing The Supernaturals, which was, once again, 1986 a movie that she did that she plays a sergeant. I guess, a sergeant. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And there, there were a couple other horror films she'd been in. Uh, I think there was one anthology, and then she was in, like, one story in it. But I think we more or less felt that probably the, the meatiest horror movie role that she did was probably in this film. So this is the one we're doing. But I, I had never rented it. I'd never seen it before this. How about you? No, I hadn't either. I, I can't say that I'm terribly surprised that this kind of falls in the forgotten category because it's... It's just okay, frankly. <laughs> I feel like you're being generous when you say that, honestly. <laughs> no, I mean, it is. It's it's okay. The acting is fine, and we'll get into all that. That You know, whatever. But when Nichelle Nichols passed, I'll, I'll be 100% honest. I'm not a Trekkie. You know, I, I've never really gotten into Star Trek. I mean, it's it's such a cultural phenomenon that, of course, I'm very much aware of it, and I'm very much aware of the people who are associated with it and who have been a part of it, but it's just not anything that I ever got into. (laughs) This will tell you how much of a Trekkie I am. The only Star Trek movie that I've really seen is the one with the whales, which is the one that everybody hates. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, it's the it's the bastard stepchild. <laughs> and, and that's the only one that I've seen, and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a Trekkie either, and I, I mean, I like sci-fi. I love it. I mean, I like sci-fi, I like fantasy, I like horror. I grew up reading this stuff more than I watched it, honestly, and even when it comes to Star Trek, I think 
all my friends and my cousins and everybody, I think they were way more into it than I was. Like, I loved it, don't get me wrong, but like, I didn't have the toys and I wasn't watching it on repeat and I wasn't kind of obsessed about it. And Star Wars was more exciting to me than Star Trek. Yeah. Then later in life, I started watching Star Trek and I realized why people love it so much. It's heady. It's a thinking person's series. It's not action and swashbuckling. It has those elements, but mm-hmm. really it's about, it's sci-fi as I read it. You know, it's Isaac Asimov. It's Ray Bradbury. It's like very intellectual kind of serious thoughts about the future and, and, and the possibilities for humanity and what would things be like. And within the context of science fiction, you can toy around with these like self-reflexive ideas about, you know, what is the nature of us and why do we do the things we do and why do we say the things we say and, you know, and all that, like that series in the 60s was incredibly groundbreaking. And I just have to say, like, the appeal to it for me is you have a society that I kind of want our society to be like, where nobody has to worry about work anymore. Everything's kind of taken care of. So now humanity has the luxury and the technology to just be able to explore and be able to see what else is out there and confront it. And then in the series, they confront races that are what you might say further behind in civilization than we are, far ahead in civilization that we are, but with this notion that, you know, they're not going to try to influence what they find. And that's really impossible, right? <laughs> you by, by showing up and by being there, you're going to influence it. But they do their best. And I, I, I mean, I, I find myself coming more and more to Star Trek. I've been watching like Next Generation. I've been watching some of this stuff. And uh, this is places where, in a way that, don't get me wrong, literature has been there for a long time exploring this idea and stuff. But as far as mainstream mass pop culture kind of stuff people are watching on television, it was very much a groundbreaking show introducing people to ideas and concepts and just ways of thinking that were very different from what was on television at the time, which is sitcoms mostly and things like that. And then, like Gene Roddenberry, I don't think you could say enough nice things about what he did through that series. He very much insisted that this has to be a multicultural cast because this is what the future would look like which you know if you watch any movie any movies of the future from the 50s the 60s and things it looks surprising you know it looks very white <laughs> but this movie was definitely not you have George Takei you know uh, there's an Asian American on there you've got uh, Uhura one of the very first prominent roles for black women on there All, same thing with the Asian American with, with George Takei what a great series and i think that you can't really say enough how groundbreaking it was for these people to give these not just to give these people opportunities but to to show the rest of at least american society and culture at that time like this is what the future probably will look like and what it could look like it's going to have these people in it and uh, and we're going to confront that head on despite what the censors say and despite what the executives say people want or whatever and we're going to go full force with it and they did it and it, I think it had an indelible impact. And Nichelle Nichols was right there in the middle of it. And she's a great actress. Right. Uh, so it's all that. Not to diminish her as a person, you know, and her, and her abilities and her right. skills. She's really good in that role. Right. She's very talented. That's the point. Despite the fact that I'm, I have not personally been 
a fan, and, and I don't even want to say that because I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of the premise and the idea and and everything that it represents. I just am not cultured in. You just never you really, know, yeah. It's, there's a lot of stuff to I'm watch. Not, I've and not gotten into, into it. and yeah, you're just not into that. I get right, it. I totally get it. But the point is, when Miss Nichols passed away, despite the fact that I personally haven't seen a lot of these movies and and the original series i felt like we needed to do this because she is such a prominent and influential force in our culture now it had it not been her it may have been someone else you know she she had a personal relationship with gene roddenberry um the creator of star trek according to her they were romantically involved for a number of years before star trek um and remained very very close um throughout when he passed away she performed a song at his funeral that she had written in his honor you know they had a a very solid relationship but regardless she did, you know, she was groundbreaking. Like you said, you know, she wasn't the first black woman on television. She wasn't the first black woman in film, but she was among the very first black women who were given roles other than the maid or yeah. the mammy or, you know, whatever. Exactly. You know, she was yeah. uh, a, a prominent character she was an equal uh, amongst them yeah and, and I think that that's I think that that's what Roddenberry was trying to do and I think that it makes a lot of logical sense but in the 1960s it just wasn't done it's especially when you're talking about uh, a series uh, and, that would go on to you know spawn a bazillion other series and and films that that's intergalactic in scope you know, you're dealing with not only human beings of different colors and, and races and creeds, but, you know, all, all different types of alien races and whatnot. Um, it, it would only make sense that those divisions uh, between races would blur and, and, and potentially disappear when everything becomes that diverse Mm -hmm. and and like you said yeah she's she's best known for this role but she was a an accomplished singer and dancer and actress before this she be you know was accomplished after this she continued working um she just did so many cool things you know she performed on stage she recorded albums she worked for NASA like (laughs) she worked for NASA for many years recruiting diverse people for for their astronaut programs just such a cool lady and um, I know that later in her life in the last I don't know five ten years or so um, at some point she suffered a small stroke she struggled with dementia she retired from doing conventions and things because her mental clarity suffered but um, just such a such a cool lady and we do this a lot. We do these um, tribute episodes a lot, but I just really felt like, God, if anybody deserves it, it's her. And and I think that she really had a cultural impact that probably most, well, 
maybe not most, but probably a lot of people don't even realize and maybe never will realize. Um, but I just have so much admiration and respect for her. And this movie, The Supernaturals, is, you know, it's fine. It's 80s. It's not great, but even in this, she's good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, like, she's, she's she her her character doesn't have a whole lot to do, but she's solid. She plays like the hard ass sergeant, um, and I believe her. Yeah, she carries herself oh, with such strength and gravitas, and uh, you know, she's she's really a highlight of this film. There, there's not a whole lot to talk about no. really <laughs> as far as the movie is concerned but but damn she's good in it yeah in in the relatively small role that she plays well i mean i'm just gonna throw my opinion on the table i thought it was kind of a cheap throwaway made for tv movie it sure feels like it like the soundtrack feels like it i wish i had seen this film in the way it was originally intended i mean it was obviously shot on film it was probably shot with care the VHS transfer and subsequent digitization that I saw just made it it look bad, and you couldn't even tell what was happening half the time because it's kind of dark and murky. And so, you know, this might be one of those films that might really benefit from a cleanup and a digital re-release that's proper, and I might look a little more highly on it, but it's kind of all over the place plot-wise. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's got about five or six different like scra- head scratching like loose ends on it it's kind of boring it's really halfway through the movie almost exactly the halfway through the movie mark that anything happens and what by anything happens like i mean anything at all interesting happens <laughs> yeah. and, and then when things kind of start happening it just it's just all over the place and you're just kind of scratching your head at what's going on and then it's over she wasn't given a huge role, but nobody has a huge role in this. No. You know, I was actually surprised when the when it's fired up and I saw this face on there. I was like, please tell me that's definitely the guy who was in Greece too, right? Because if not, my memory oh, yeah. serves me. And yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, it's the Maxwell, dude from Greece yeah. too. You know, the really hot, handsome looking dude from Greece too, who I thought I, I can't believe has not gone on to be the next James Dean just based on oh, his looks alone. Well, <laughs> Maxwell Caulfield, Maxwell Ca- Maxwell Caulfield is a cautionary tale. Oh, is he? Yeah, he was like he said in interviews that um, he was. Hollywood's new golden boy like they were telling him they were telling him that he was the next Richard Gere like he was just set to you know be this huge rising star very talented history and theater um, musical theater he could sing he could dance he could act he's gorgeous and he just had this incredible career ahead of him. And then Grease 2 happened. Oh. After Grease 2, nobody would touch You're him. You're kidding. It, you know that oh. nobody would touch him. And uh, he really feels – at this point, he's kind of over it. But, like, he was really bitter about it for a really long time because he, he couldn't get work. Um, except in stuff like <laughs> the supernaturals, maybe I don't. I don't know if this came before or after Greece too. But yeah, like, and now he looks back on it and he says, you know, I I have to be grateful for being a part of 
a cult phenomenon because I think Grease Two is stupid. I, oh, yeah. I never liked it. I never I never saw the appeal of it. But I know there are a lot of people who really like it. There are some people who like it better than the well, original. Um, as kids, we watch it all the time, so we liked it. But we oh, were got kids. it. Yeah. Know, uh, nowadays, no. His other big role was in um, Empire Records with uh, Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger. Mm. I, I think in in the late nineties. And and he played kind of an iconic role in that. He he played he played like a, an aging pop star. His name was Rex Manning, and they were celebrating Rex Manning Day at the record store. And like that that role and and that movie have also kind of given him cult status and he embraces that but um he's still a little bit bitter but you know the, the he's he's still working oh yeah like every year all year i mean ever since this this was uh his like um he, well this came after grease 2 for sure a grease 2 was in 82 this was in 86 he did a few things electric dreams is this like classic 80s movie did you ever see that no. Oh my God! It's about a cello player and and a, and a computer, and it's there's almost no more '80s movie than Electric Dreams. Honestly, he had a small role on Dynasty for a few episodes, like nine, and then he was doing the Supernaturals and stuff like this. He was in Waxwork too, Lost in Time, which I'm sure we'll do at some point because we did the original, and I have actually fonder memories of the sequel. So. Since the mid-80s, early 80s, steadily he's had three or four to five roles every year. So, uh, yeah, and still working. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, for I, sure. I, I, think, I think that I've seen some of the stuff that he's been in recently, and I think that I just didn't recognize him because, of course, now he's older and he, and he looks yeah, but different. You know what he looks like now? He looks like kind of like a Roger Moore, like James Bond era Roger Moore. He's still... He's still yeah, kind of... Yeah, he's a handsome man, and and he's not a bad actor, and he's fine in this. And you know, I I think that uh, he's he's basically cast for his looks. Like he's the very handsome one. Like <laughs> that's kind of his role. <laughs> right. He's a private. So uh, Nichelle Nichols plays Sergeant Leona Hawkins, and she's leading this. I don't know what you call them. You're the military kid. What would you call this? What are they? Like this a unit? <laughs> unit, troop, group, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, of, of, of people. They're just... Of, it doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense from a military standpoint, though. Let's just let's just get that out but, there. <laughs> sure, fair enough. But it's supposed to be like a training exercise where they get dropped off in the woods for three days and they're going to be training or something. I don't know, whatever. Sergeant Hawkins, Nichelle Nichols is in charge, and then it's just a whole you know group. I don't even know how many of them there are. Too many to keep track of eight or something. And another one of them is Private Angela Lejeune, who's played by Talia Balsam, who I am not personally familiar with but she <laughs> like look at her imdb page she is working all the time <laughs> like she is she is uh she's everywhere and, and she's you know currently working on some series right now she's i think in mad men uh she was Mona yes sterling and mad men which is a big role <laughs> yeah and then uh, Private Michael Osgood is played by LeVar Burton. Right. <laughs> who, y you know, who who for forever in my heart 
will be the reading rainbow guy. Right. But, um, but, uh, you know, he did a, a, a big stint on Star Trek also. He was the guy that wore those funny sunglasses things. Yep, Jordy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The, the blind guy on Star Trek. Yeah. Jordy. Uh, can't remember his last name, but yeah, Jordy. Yeah. On Star Trek. Star Trek to the next generation. There are a couple of other, uh, familiar faces in here too from the 80s and and a couple of people who you know continued to work and and who continue to work <laughs> one of the gibbs brothers from the bgs makes a cameo uh in the film he orig- he originally wrote the score for the movie but it was rejected in favor of of a different score supposedly there's a cut of the movie out there where you can hear the gibbs score um but that's love not to hear it. what we saw what we saw was lame just a lame very standard kind of i thought like generic you know, generic score to the point where it was so generic it was almost distracting like God, it cheapened the movie so much. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is, you know, here we are almost halfway through. We've barely talked about the movie at all. It's because there's really not much to talk about. Okay, oh. so the premise is it opens with a flashback, I guess, to 1865. This is in Alabama. It's during the Civil War. This young kid is playing amongst the dead bodies of these Confederate soldiers, and (laughs) he's, he's like, picking pieces of their uh, uniforms off of their bodies and putting them on like he's like playing dress up or whatever. And a Confederate, an older Confederate soldier approaches him. Jeremy, now that your daddy's gone, you've got to take care of your mama, you understand? Now listen, I want you to go home. You go straight home. You take Hopkins Road, the long way, and you stay out of that holler because it's been mined. We put those mines there to kill Yanks and keep them out of our land, not to kill little boys. You understand? Yes, sir. You've got to take care of yourself, too, Jeremy, because you're special. We've all seen that. God has smiled on you, boy. But then both he and the soldier who warned him are are um, captured by Union soldiers, and they're forced to walk across this field um, that they had planted mines in. And the Union general or whatever is like, you know, your mines have cost us lots of men and lots of time, so now you're going to you know, hunt them out for us or whatever. And he forces them to walk across this minefield. And he tells them, if you make it all the way across, then you can just keep going and be free. Well, they walk across and (laughs) all of them get blown up except for the kid. And then when the kid walks, like once he gets all the way across and he turns around and he looks back, the the Union uh, generals like, do it again. Um, and, and the kid looks scared and the wind starts to blow and his hand starts to glow. (laughs) And then it quick cuts to the future and it quick cuts so much and doesn't give us a new, like, like it gave, yeah, it gave us a title card for the past, but it didn't give us a new title card. So I started weird. watching this. I started watching this on YouTube. It's available on YouTube. And at this point, I'm like, 
something must have gotten cut out. So I went and rented it on Amazon. No, nothing got cut out. It's just an unexplained cut to, I don't know, I guess modern day, although it's very clearly the 80s. And you've got the same unit, Unit 44 or whatever, but, you know, of course, modern day. A hundred years later, I mean, uh, or more. I mean, let's let's just talk real quick about like the silliness of all of this. This minefield that they're making him walk across is like smaller than my backyard. Yeah, walk around it, Jesus. But it's got you know like fifteen mines in it. Apparently, like all within feet of each other. Like who would do that, right? So it's kind of it's kind of silly. And the whole movie is sort of shot in the woods, basically. But it just feels like the woods down the street. I never felt to me anyway like a very desolate location. And then, I don't know, I, I don't really think that like units and unit numbers and things from the Union soldier side of the Civil War have therefore carried through to the modern army where those Lord units knows. still exist and have the same number. I mean, it's, it's, it's very silly. And everything that's military, I, I'm just... I'm not an expert in the military, but I was a military brat, you know, and, right. and some, you don't even need to be a, a military brat to kind of recognize that a lot of the things that they do in this movie are kind of dumb and silly. And if you can't even have a modicum of care towards a slight amount of authenticity for this, it kind of degrades all of it. It takes the whole movie into silly territory when you're only just like 15 minutes in. And when we jump to the future, it's just these two guys. Like, I guess they're supposed to be, like, scouting this location or, like, oh. setting up perimeter flags or something. It's it's totally unclear. But then, like, the wind blows and the ground opens up and it's, like, glowing and it, like, swallows them down. And then we never really hear anything about them again. Nothing more about these two guys. Well, I feel like later somebody stumbles upon one of their heads. <laughs> oh, it took me forever to figure out it was one of them. Yeah, I thought it was Mark <laughs> Burton there for a quick second. I yeah. did too. Because <laughs> there's, there's only two black guys in the movie. So, yeah. <laughs> a 50-50 chance, yeah. Right, but uh, but then it cuts away from them, and it cuts back to this, you know, group of soldiers who are coming here for the training mission, and they horse around, and you kind of get to m- meet all of them, and you find out that Maxwell Caulfield's character, Private Ellis, can run fast. Like, who cares? <laughs> and then, really, nothing happens for the next 45 minutes. Oh, my God. Like, Nothing. The only thing that happens is that they keep running across this middle-aged white woman in all white, just, like, hanging out in the woods. And she makes googly eyes with uh, Ellis, like, I don't know, 700 times over the next 45 minutes. And that's really the only thing that happens. Like, there's hijinks, like, I don't know, one guy guy screws around with his gun and just random things like they like Ellis finds a skull and they're like oh cool like (laughs) (laughs) nothing happens I'm sorry to say this because it's just a movie who cares but like the military is not like this right if you're gonna go out for a training mission in the woods 
you know, everything's going to be quite serious. And these guys are like their fraternity out there, uh-huh. farting around, you know, playing around, tossing skulls, drinking beer, joking. Making out. Making out. That was bizarre. Uh, you know, there's a woman in this group, and uh, her name is uh, Lejeune. Lejeune. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where they're all sitting around a campfire, and they're chatting, and then Lejeune is out there. I mean, seriously, it's like kind of from a Friday the 13th movie more than it's from like a, you know, a movie where there's supposed to be military activity happening. They're sitting around a campfire and chatting, and Lejeune is kind of off by herself, and so our main character, Ellis, walks up to her, and they have a little conversation. And throughout the course of their conversation, real quickly, we realize that they've had a relationship before, which is weird. And then they, like, talk about it in this professional situation, which is also weird. And then they kiss. What? This is not This is not military activity. I mean, you know, it's, it's just not going to... I mean, don't get me wrong. This kind of thing could happen, but it's not going to happen out in the right. open. On, on, right. you know, while you're in the middle of this drill where then the sergeant comes Nichols over. comes over and is like, you guys cut it out. Please be advised that you're pulling double shift guard duty tonight. That's 2200 to 0200. It should help you keep your mind on proper military conduct. That's in five minutes. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Sorry, mom. And I feel bad for Silly. her because I feel like her character, all she really could do in this movie was just to be tough and bark orders at people. She didn't get much beyond that. No, but nobody does. Like, it's it, it, it's an ensemble cast, I guess you would say, but all that means is that everybody's spread really thin, so you don't really yeah. know anybody. You don't really care about anybody. Like, I, I never really even got it. Like, are Ellis and Lejeune currently an item uh, did they used to be and maybe they're like rekindling or something because he's also not necessarily overtly flirting with the mysterious woods woman but kind of yeah and 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 right in front of lejeune yeah. so Maybe they're not in a relationship. And I, I mean, there's, I don't know. there's a mysterious woods woman, and everybody's just like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> like, there's no, like, no, you're supposed to be out in the middle of nowhere, right? And there's some woman in a white dress by herself who's coming and going. Like, that's bizarre enough to at least treat it a little differently than these people treat it. Well, and the sergeant asks her, like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Melanie. And she's like, uh, do you live here? Well, yeah, around here. Well, are there more of you? Mm, yeah, maybe. Like, <laughs> just. Yeah, she's that way the whole what? time. And they just put up with it. Like, they'll just. Right, ask- like, she just keeps showing up in their camp. Like, like a stray dog, you know, that comes and goes. They'll ask her questions. Even in later on in the movie when scenes get intense and it's like, look, we need answers from you because you clearly have something to do with this. They'll ask her questions and she'll just not answer. And that'll be okay uh-huh. with them. You know, like they don't... Right. Just so maddening. It's just so silly. And, you know, when I was out and about, because I was trying so hard to dig up information on this movie and I could find so little, there is a reviewer online, which is why... Actually, this is why I rarely re- read reviews when I'm doing this. Who says, The characterizations of the soldiers are also well-developed. 
Um, the director may have well been inspired by Aliens, which came out about the same time as the Supernaturals. Although, if anything, the characterizations of the soldiers here are superior to the ones in Aliens. What? Oh, Absolutely not. That it's the opposite. No. And then she, and then this person goes on to say, there is a very funny scene with a drunken Bobby DeCicio forcing his way into Talia Balsam's tent. That and is not a funny scene at all. It's not funny at all. It... Oh, my God. It's a scene that never would be filmed today. Like, I think that they thought they might have been funny, but it's not. So he's like the douchey one. That's established. Like, he's the douchey one. but And he's kind of hit on her before. And again, I, I know even less about the goings-on of the military than you do. But I would imagine... And I could be entirely wrong, so <laughs> those of you out there Keep going. who know about things, you know, Set I, straight. I, 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 I'm just talking straight out of my butthole. But I could imagine that women in the military face some of this misogynistic crap and that it's probably, you know, a very real part of their lives that they have to learn to deal with. And I'm sure that they find ways to deal with it. And I'm sure that a lot of them deal with it with humor or you know wit or or whatever but he he crawls into her tent at night her small tent and is like kind of trying to sweet talk her all the while pulling his pants like he's he's hovering over her and he's pulling his pants down like she's just gonna be like oh well thank goodness you're here and have sex with him it no it comes across as very rapey and i guess the joke is that she kind of sort of plays along with it until he's mostly depanced and then she puts her knife between his legs you know i i guess right up against his dick or his balls or or whatever and you know sends him scurrying off into the night Uh, it's not funny it actually made me very uncomfortable i didn't like it at all yeah. It was gross. It was gross. It wasn't funny. It was weird. I feel like even in the early to mid-80s, this wasn't even that funny. No. And, and it's all of this is unnecessary. We're like halfway through the movie, and all we've gotten are these hijinks with these sort of like, oh, this guy's a douchebag. This guy's the pretty boy. This woman is mysterious, and she's in the woods. And There's like a simple one. <laughs> and they found they found an area that's a clearing where it's just like yellow ground or something, and they're like, Everything's oh, dead. This is bizarre. It's dead. Oh, and, and at one point, Court falls in a hole. It's more like a trap. And he looks around, and he finds a lantern, and he finds a corpse, and... He sees a scarecrow. I guess they're try- they think they're building some suspense or they think they're building some intrigue. But all this stuff is just, I don't know what to say. Like, it's just a hodgepodge of random stuff that doesn't feel particularly sinister. Another thing they find is, um, like, uh, there's a bunch of sticks, right, that are in their way, uh, sharpened to points. Like, you know, they're blocking the like path. Like a booby like, trap. Kind of like a yeah. booby trap, like a mysterious thing. And one of them, I can't remember who it is, speaks up and says, oh, this must date back to, like, the Confederate times because this is, like, the Napoleonic Wars. They used things like this. To get, and I'm like, like, what? Even in the 80s, would you would you consider that these sticks that you found in the woods have been there since Confederate times? No, they have very clearly been, like, freshly carved. So, 
it's all so hokey and silly. And and we're halfway through, and this is all that's happened. It's that guy, right? At court, who gets gets pushed away by um, Lejeune from his his attempted rape, who then stumbles off into the glowing, smoky woods, right? Uh, he doesn't really have a motivation for it. I think he hears a noise or something. I don't know. A dark figure comes up behind him, which we can't see clearly, and he runs. He falls into another one of these pit traps, and he now he's in a cave with with a wooden roof and a bunch of lanterns that are lit. That's when we see this this head, I guess. I th- Like I said, I, I, I thought it was Oz. And uh, I don't know, he's got something in his mouth, like he's been, I don't know. what. He, I didn't know anyway. what that was. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. What what lured Court out into the woods is that they're glowing now. Yeah. <laughs> they're blue and glowing and smoky, right? And he's Very like, that's blue. weird. So he goes out there. Like you said, he, he falls in. You know, the first time somebody fell in there, I don't remember who it was. Like, first they thought it was like a booby trap, and then they're like, no, it's a bunker. Well, it turns out it's like a whole freaking tunnel system. But while he's down there, um, a zombie comes out of the wall, and... Uh, Court tries to climb out, but he's being pursued by more than one zombie. And then it cuts to the next morning, and he's missing, and they go looking for him, and they find his body. At first, they think he's just passed out, but uh, against um, a tree. he's dead. And then the sergeant like looks at all the other soldiers, and she's like, this is totally your fault. Like, what? <laughs> all right. <laughs> You're supposed to be paying attention. You're doing this. You're doing whatever. Choose them all out. And then gets to work, and she asks Weir to contact base on the radio. Said, I don't care what it takes. You get a signal. So he's got to climb a tree for that. Then asks three others to go with her to go looking for something, whatever. Yeah, I don't know Who what knows? they're looking for. And th- they end up finding a cabin in, in the woods. And so they break in, and there's nothing in there for a while. No, somebody- except my favorite, this is my favorite part of the movie. In this hundred and something year old cabin ellis finds a perfectly intact journal yes of a confederate widow from 1865 (laughs) perfectly preserved yeah like it shows him turning the pages like he could have bought this at borders like yesterday (laughs) (laughs) it's so true She's writing about how her dearest Evan has gone off to war and she hasn't heard from him in a long time. Um, and then, you know, in another entry, it's like news of Evan's death came today. <laughs> but thank God I still have Jeremy. If it weren't for him, I, I'd probably just die. Well, so it, it's pretty obvious that this is the mother of the kid from the opening scene right jeremy is that kid yeah yeah and then they find this old like decrepit white-haired man just huddling in a corner he doesn't talk he doesn't do anything he's just huddling there in the corner and then melanie the woman in white shows (laughs) up up just suddenly and yeah just out of nowhere just shows up won't answer any questions (laughs) <laughs> no, won't answer any questions, but at this point, wasn't it pretty freaking obvious what was happening? Yeah, of course you know what's going on, yeah. Yeah, like, obviously, and of course this comes in a reveal later, but the old white-haired dude is Jeremy, 
and the mysterious woman in white, Melanie, is his mom. Now, at this point, we don't really know how or why that could be, but it seemed perfectly obvious yeah, in the moment. Of course. Anyway. So they're... I don't know. Yeah, they leave there, and uh, they're all looking at a map and trying to figure out how they're going to go to some other place and where they're going to go. The radio isn't working, and and then suddenly, like, they're under fire. Somebody starts shooting at them, and it's... Unseen forces. Yeah, and this goes this goes on for a while. Forever. Like, they're just getting fired on, Forever. and, like, some of them get shot, and then some more of them get shot, and then... Sedge thinks he's seeing a zombie, and he shoots at him, but it turns out it's Oz... So now yeah, Oz is dead. So he's killed him, and then and then Sedge runs away into the forest because I don't know what he's running for. I guess he's just so distraught over having killed his friend, and uh, like he sees a zombie that startles him, so he jumps back and he impales himself on <laughs> uh, one oh. of those spikes. I, I I have to say that oddly, this was an oddly sad moment, like. Um, he impales himself on this spike and then Ellis finds him and the actor's like, Ellis, I can't move. Why can't I move? And he looks down and he sees the spike coming through his chest and he like starts crying <laughs> before yeah. he dies. And I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah, that was... I mean, it was a touching moment in an otherwise odd scene like that. That chase went on forever. And then it's like, oh, zombie, ah, back up, and then impalement, you know? And then when Alice finds him, there's no zombie there, you know? No. It just, the, the, all these, these, these threats come and go all the while. They're in this weird woods, and this woman in the white dress is just sitting there silently, sort of watching all this happen, right, from where they are. And then uh, Jejun, I don't know what this whole deal was. I, I guess she finds something, and it looks like a... It's, like it's a Confederate bullet that um, earlier in the movie Ellis had found a bullet, it, but it's not like a modern bullet. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a what do you call it? It's, uh, it's, a, like it's a, ball, a ball. Like yeah, yeah. And he had found it, and he had given it to her, and she finds one and compares it, and they're the same. So I think that it's supposed to be like she figures out why are we being shot with Confederate bullets like it doesn't make any sense at that same time melanie who's sitting there right next to her disappears and <laughs> reappears immediately <laughs> in the in the right in the forest where she finds ellis carrying um sedgwick's body back and because she appears out of nowhere he looks at her and says it's you you're making this happen why and then she shows him a flashback which is basically the opening scene but we get more information mm. after the little kid had walked through and the union general had ordered him to do it again she melanie his mother arrived and uh, she saw him and she ran across the minefield i guess in theory she didn't know it was a minefield i don't know to try to get to him and she got blown up by a mine but he with his glowing hands revived her like brought her back from the dead and so she runs to him and she grabs him and she holds him but then she stares directly into the camera ominously like i have in mm. my notes like he brought her back 
but is she different? (laughs) 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 It's so stupid. She's evil. Yeah. And and then she just lays it out. You know, she, she tells him that the old man in the cabin is Jeremy. She's like, he's my son and yours. Come with me, Evan. Uh And I'm like, what? And so she shows him a, picture in her locket and it's him but with a mustache (laughs) (laughs) and and she's like our love is eternal or something i don't know and he yells at her and she runs away and then he runs and he falls but like zombie arms like come out of the ground and, are coming and, after him. and then they chase him and he's fighting him and oh, oh my god. god and i guess this is supposed to be know. the conclusion like the remaining soldiers like weir is like the simple one i really liked him he was really sweet oh i have a theory and if you haven't seen the movie this will probably mean nothing to you but you've seen the movie i think weir and chris were a couple <laughs> <laughs> Because they're always together. <laughs> because they're always together, and they're always very concerned about each other's safety. <laughs> I think they're a cute. It could be. They're a cute little couple. Could be. Um, but cute then couple. Weir gets grabbed by a zombie, but Chris saves him, and but then they both get. They both end up getting killed anyway. And Ellis goes back to the cabin and visits old man Jeremy, and <laughs> Melanie bursts in, and she's like, "Get away from him!" But Ellis turns to Jeremy and he's like, you can end all of this, all of the pain and the suffering, you can end it. And then I thought that a zombie shot Ellis, because that's what it looked like. And it looked, it did, but I guess not because he's fine. So yeah, I don't know. But he, raised him or something. He, yeah. he says to the old man, he says to the old man, end it, send her back. And so Jeremy does the whole, like, glowing hands thing. Animates her back to the land of the dead, yes. <laughs> yeah, she, she like, she, like, glows and screams and, and disappears. Ellis looks back at old man Jeremy, and he's dead. He's just sitting there, like, with his face to the ceiling and his eyes wide open. Oh, God, that poor guy. <laughs> just oh, been man. living out there in the woods with his ghost mom for the past hundred years. That's horrible. Decides to end it because this guy (laughs) (laughs) suggests it. You can do it, get in the suffering. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I can't. It's like Dorothy with her ruby red slippers, right? You could have done all this all the time. (laughs) It only took 100 years. I guess I might as well. It only took 100 years for somebody who looks exactly like his dead dad to show up and tell him it's okay. (laughs) Right. Are we supposed to think that this he's like a descendant or something? I have no flipping idea. It's so stupid. As as we're describing this movie, it sounds way more interesting than it actually plays out on screen. It's not interesting. It's boring. Don't watch it. It's boring and confusing and hard to see and weird and not not satisfying at all. Yeah. Don't watch you it. know, and the funny thing is like so I started like I said I started watching it on YouTube and the the transfer was bad. Like it was obviously a transfer from a VHS. And then that was another thing that led me to rent it from Amazon. I'm like, "Oh, surely it will be better quality on Amazon." Nope. <laughs> like nope. the quality the same you, you can't you can't quality. yeah, it's crappy. And it just made me <laughs> 
think like this is how we used to watch movies all the time and we thought it was fine mm. like that's yeah because the also, the screens were smaller and lower resolution, too, uh-huh. so it didn't even look as bad on those little screens, right? <laughs> we're spoiled now. I, I mean, yeah. that, I mean that's that, that's what movies looked like when we were growing up. It was terrible. Oh, my God, we had it so rough. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway. Thank God we lived this thank long. Thank God. Th- then it's morning, and Ellis goes back to camp, and he finds Melanie's locket, and he's greeted by Lejeune, who, like, I don't know embraces him or something and so he drops the locket hawkins is still alive and like wisecracking i don't even remember what she says but like none of them seem particularly bothered by the fact that everybody else is dead i know (laughs) nor do lejeune or hawkins ask for any kind of explanation of what happens like uh, (laughs) thank god that's over (laughs) let's get out of here well one of the worst training exercises ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> so they put Hawkins because she like I think she got shot in the leg or something. So they put her between them and they just walk out of there. Leave. Yeah, <laughs> that's the end. And then there's some cheesy song over the oh, credits. God. Oh man. Oh god. Oh. I wish there had been anything really to like about this movie because, you know, this happens all the time. We do these tribute movies to these people. But it's because, you know, Nichelle Nichols is not a horror staple. You know, like, (laughs) horror is what we do. It's not necessarily what she did. This isn't her best work. But even that said, I mean, she she does perfectly fine with what she's given to work with. I mean, she... That's the key. She plays the hard-nosed sergeant believably and well, and, and, and she looks good doing it. it. To be fair, nobody in the movie is terrible. I mean, Maxwell Caulfield is beautiful and, and beautiful to look at. He's got great hair. I'm super jealous of his hair. Well, of everything. He, he he's just he's incredibly handsome. You know, I'm I'm happy to see LeVar Burton in anything. I, I have just such a soft spot for him in my heart from my childhood, you know, that this is the guy that got our generation reading. <laughs> I I loved that show. I loved that show and he's got a great voice yeah. and he would he would read the books and they would show the illustrations from the books. Man, I loved that. So you know, it, it's always nice to see him. And it is a movie that you said that you remembered seeing it on the shelves. I don't. I don't remember seeing it. I I I didn't know anything about it. I feel like it's kind of been lost to time and I I understand why. It's not remarkable. It's not memorable. It it's the type of movie that falls by the wayside for a reason because there's just really nothing there's there's no, just not much just, to say about it. It's just lame. I mean, it's just a dumb movie cobbled together. The script is silly. None of it makes sense. It's not even particularly well shot. It's dark and things. Hopefully that's just a, a factor of the transfer. You got these famous people in it, you know, famous at the time, perfectly capable, but they have nothing to work with. And so, you know, sadly, here we are with our tribute episode, as you said always, for Nichelle Nichols. And we're talking about her horror movie, which... 
for about 90% of the famous actors and actresses that we talk about on this on on this series their horror movies are not usually their standout products for them right. so it's just an excuse for us to find something you know that we wouldn't otherwise find and ta- and pay tribute to somebody you know that we care about otherwise and and uh, has had an Right, and that I legitimately respect and admire. I, I, I mean, oh yeah, this this woman was a trailblazer. That y- you can't take that away from her. Whoopi Goldberg credits Nichelle Nichols with being one of the people who inspired her to be an actress, who made her believe that people who looked like her could do it. Mm. You you can't underestimate this woman's um, influence. After the first season of um, Star Trek, she was just already kind of sick of the racist bullshit that she was facing from critics um, and and the public. And she just was she was ready to walk away. She was being offered other projects. She was being offered projects on stage, and she she went to. Gene Roddenberry. She went to Gene Roddenberry and she turned in her resignation. And he said, look, I really, really don't want to lose you. Take the weekend. And if you come back and and you still want to leave, I'll let you go. No hard feelings, but I really don't want to. And that weekend, she uh participated in some sort of convention or rally for the NAACP and somebody approached her and said a fan would like to to speak with you and she said that's fine and that fan was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He came and just gushed about what a huge fan he was. He said that um that Star Trek was the only show that he allowed his children to stay up at night to watch and when she told him that she was planning on leaving, he said, you can't, you cannot, you are representation. You know, you're the, you're the only person of color in a role like this. You're the only woman in a role like this. You're the only person that young black people, that young women can look up to on television, you know, in, in this you know, huge forum. Um, you've got to stay. And so she went back to Gene Roddenberry after the weekend and said, I'll stay. And uh, apparently he pulled out her resignation letter, which he had already torn up. <laughs> and and the rest is history. She stayed for the remainder of that season. She went on to do like, I don't know, I think six of the movies or something like that. She's a legend and deservedly so. And this movie sucks, but she's amazing. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be able to, uh, to 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 show her our respect. Yes. Don't watch this movie. Watch some Star Trek yeah. instead. <laughs> watch the whale one. It's good. <laughs> I don't even know if she said it. <laughs> You're the only one who would say that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online. We have our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, our website, twoguys.red40net.com, and also our Patreon page, patreon.com slash chainsawpodcast. Go there and consider supporting our podcast. It doesn't take much, but you'll get a whole bunch of goodies. Thank you so much for listening, 100%. We love hearing from you, and we want to hear 
uh, what you thought of this podcast and uh, this movie, perhaps, and any other movies that you would like us to review in the future. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.